Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast instalment contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's around 11 in the morning, Saturday the 25th of March 1922, and two boys are walking through the rain along a road west of Neerham Junction, in the direction of Powelltown. The taller of the lads is actually the youngest. This is Henry Maple, 15, and he has a Winchester 22 caliber rifle over his shoulder. His mate, Robert Banks, is 18, and he carries a shotgun in similar fashion. Whether they know it or not, as they trudge this road, people all around Australia are talking about them. Newspaper stories about these boy bushrangers are thrilling and chilling, in the mould of Ned Kelly and his gang of outlaws. In the past few days, Henry Maple has shot up a woman's house. He's also fired point-blank at a constable and hit the man in the head. For all the lads know, this police officer is dead. Now, they're being hunted by a huge, heavily armed posse. It's only a matter of time before there's another showdown and an even deadlier shootout. But for the moment, the boys are hungry. So they slip into an orchard, gather some apples and sit on a fence to eat their breakfast. Henry Maple has big ideas. He wants to rob a bank, hop a train and escape to Melbourne. What he doesn't know is that his mate Robert Banks has other plans. And what neither of them know is they've been seen in these parts and word is now being rushed to the police at nearby Neerham Junction. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final instalment in the Forgotten Australia episode, Young Ned Kelly, the boy bushranger of 1922. Henry Maple and Robert Banks had not been declared outlaws by the Victorian government. The suggestion had been raised and rejected. 
Despite the danger they posed, this meant they weren't allowed to be shot on sight by anyone, anywhere, anytime, the way it had been back in the days of the Kelly Gang. This of course meant that civilians had no official or legal role to play in the manhunt. Yet, before dawn that Saturday, the 25th of March, a posse of about 30 men, half police and half bush farmers and returned soldiers, headed out from Neerham Junction to catch the boy bush rangers. Many of these men, constables and civilians, were armed with military service rifles that had been brought to town and handed out. The posse was led by Aboriginal trackers Peter Jackson and George Ambrose. They hoped to pick up the boys' trail from the bush camp where Constable Bartles had been shot at point-blank range by Henry Maple on Thursday afternoon. But with the rain still so heavy, the trackers' talents weren't able to be utilised in the dense forest. At Stanley Lockett's farm, the party split into two groups. Into the bush they trekked, covering as much of the difficult terrain as they could, beating the scrub, hoping to flush the boys out. Around 7.30am, one of the party spied two figures carrying guns a couple of miles distant. There was a good deal of excitement as the men closed in on their quarry. But coming up on them could have resulted in tragedy. That was because the two men in their sights were out ahead of the other group of searchers. The two parties now joined up again. With everyone on edge, it was too dangerous to be separated in conditions like this. What they didn't know was that they were wasting their time this big search party was going in the wrong direction. Supervising Police Officer Superintendent McCormack of Sale had arrived at Neerham Junction in a motor car around 10am. Almost immediately he was told that locals had spotted the bushrangers. They were west of Neerham Junction. The boys had been seen leisurely walking along a road in the direction of Powtown. Then at 11 o'clock word came that the boys were in an orchard. They were sitting on a fence, eating apples, just as happy as you please. Superintendent McCormack got in his car and drove east to round up the posse, but they were nowhere to be found. While the super was searching for the searchers, Henry Maple had come up with a plan. What they should do was this. Go back to his family house and, after night fell, he could slip in and get a change of clothes. They'd also grab a horse. Then they'd ride off and, like real bushrangers, they'd bail up a bank. Pockets filled with cash, they'd make for Yarra Junction Station. From there, they'd get a train into Melbourne. Henry had now and again worked in the city, and he knew places like Richmond and North Melbourne pretty well. They could disappear there, where no one was looking for them. Geez, it wasn't like the coppers had been able to find Squizzy Taylor, now was it? The little gangster had been on the lam since June of last year. Funny bugger even wrote letters to the Herald. Henry thought he had a pretty good plan, but Robert threw a spanner in the works by saying he wouldn't go back to the Maple Place. If Henry wanted to do that, fair enough, but he'd be on his own. What Robert would do was hide out overnight and meet Henry tomorrow at Knott's Mill, some 15 miles from Neerham Junction, out past Nuji. After that, Robert Banks would see about robbing Banks and the rest of it. Henry agreed to this, but he made his mate swear to stay staunch. Robert gave his most solemn promise. He'd meet Henry at Knott's Mill tomorrow morning. The boys said their goodbyes and went their separate ways. It wasn't until three that afternoon that Superintendent McCormack happened on three constables who'd become separated from the main search party. The superintendent drove these officers back to Neerham Junction. 
there, they secured horses and rode out to intercept the boy bushrangers. In the meantime, George Wollstonecroft and another civilian vigilante were riding their horses from Goodwood in the direction of Neerham Junction. George, just turned 21, was the son of pioneer and district leader John Wollstonecroft. George and his mate could hardly believe their eyes when, up on the road ahead, they saw Robert Banks. George recognised the boy. He'd seen him last week when Robert was staying with the Maple family. The boy bushranger was unarmed. Robert didn't try to get away as the men rode up and covered him with their rifles. Robert was cold, hungry and exhausted, and he was relieved to be caught. He took the men to the spot nearby where he'd hidden his shotgun and 250 cartridges. The riders took him a mile down the road where they met the trio of police constables on horseback. Robert Banks was officially arrested, handcuffed and taken into custody. The police's young captive certainly wanted to talk. He told them how Henry had suggested they become bushrangers. It had been Henry's plan to break into the Bloomfield store. Robert had agreed to that, but then things had gotten out of control. Henry had become enraged because he believed the Johnstons had stolen his stashed suitcase. Henry had been the one to shoot up the house, and then he'd fired on Constable Bartles. Robert Banks told how the policeman's bullet had blown the cigarette out of Henry's mouth. In the days since that close call, they'd been hiding in the bush. Robert was to say, quote, I was full up of bushranging and being hunted about, and I was afraid of my life of Maple. He nearly shot me twice, and when I asked him why he didn't, he said the hammer would not catch. Given what had been said and would be said about Henry Maple's proficiency with his 22, this story of a non-firing rifle seemed quite unlikely. Robert also claimed Henry had threatened him, saying, If I shoot you, I'll bury you in the bush, and nobody will know where to find you. If Henry Maple wanted to be Ned Kelly, then was he going to make Robert Banks his Aaron Sherratt? Robert wasn't taking any chances. When Henry came up with his new plan, Robert saw the opportunity to get away. Once he and his erstwhile mate had gone in their different directions, he'd stashed the shotgun and walked the road, knowing he'd soon be able to give himself up. But Henry wasn't going to give himself up. That's what Robert said. He said that the boy bushranger intended to go out in a blaze of glory. No way would he be taken alive. Around the time Robert was talking and being driven down to the lockup at Warrigal, women at some farmhouses spotted Henry Maple walking across country at the place of Mr English, just a quarter of a mile from Neerham Junction. Henry was wearing an old military overcoat and carrying his rifle. They saw the boy cross a paddock, climb a fence and enter an orchard. The women called in Cooed to attract the attention of nearby men. Hearing this alarm being sounded, Henry ran for it. Word of the sighting reached Neerham Junction just as the main search party was finally returning after their long day of looking in the wrong place. Thirty armed constables and civilians now raced towards Mr English's property. By now though, Henry was walking alongside the house of a Mr Wilson. Mr Wilson didn't have a gun to hand. He called out to the boy, What are you after out there? Henry, he said, replied, It is hard to tell yet. But what Henry seemed to be after was a fight. That's because while the posse was still searching over at Mr English's place, the boy had a chance to escape into heavy bracken fern country to the north of Mr Wilson's. Instead, Henry kept out in the open, made a half circle and crossed the main road to a paddock of a Mr Doolan. Mr Doolan saw the lad about 50 yards away. Henry saw him, lifted his rifle and aimed it. 
Mr. Doolan dropped to the ground and crawled into ferns for cover. Henry ran from the paddock now, entered another property and pointed his gun at women and children who'd appeared in the door of their farmhouse. Henry didn't shoot. He kept running. He was spotted by a man named Eric Wilson who was milking cows. Mr. Wilson grabbed a shotgun and gave chase. George Wollstonecroft, fresh from catching Robert Banks, saw Henry fleeing ahead of Mr. Wilson. Here was George's chance to be the man who caught both boy bushrangers. So he rode into the paddock to head off Henry. Even though Henry was running away, Mr. Wilson shot at him twice. Both shotgun blasts missed. Henry was being fired on from behind. An armed man on horseback was racing towards him, and several more gun-toting fellows were charging across paddocks. Henry made for a fallen tree. George Wollstonecroft aimed and fired, but he was a second too late. Henry had dropped out of sight. Now the boy jumped up and he fired. His aim was true, the bullet hitting George's rifle stock and ricocheting into his right arm to become embedded near the shoulder. Henry went to reload, so did George, but George's rifle ejector had been blown away. As he reached to take his revolver from its holster, his horse wheeled around just as Henry fired. His bullet hit George in the back below his right shoulder. George Wollstonecroft fell from his horse in a heap. This shootout had been witnessed by some 100 men, women and children. Constables and civilians, some on foot, others on horseback, raced across the paddocks to help the stricken man. Henry seized his chance, threw off his heavy overcoat and ran for the gully. Men opened fire, but none could hit him. Constables on horseback thundered after Henry, but he had too much of a head start. He made it to the gully. When his pursuers reached the bush, Henry Maple was already gone. Back in 1914, George Wollstonecroft's father, the councillor, had welcomed the Australian Governor-General to the district to institute a bush nursing service. He couldn't have imagined then that eight years later it had helped save his son's life. The bush nurse was at the scene quickly and she reportedly put her fingers into George's bullet wounds to stop the flow of blood. When it was under control, she bandaged him up. George was taken by car to a private hospital down at Warrigal. One bullet had gone through his right lung. The other was lodged in his arm. The doctor, George Lay, didn't hold out much hope for George Wollstonecroft's recovery. Henry Maple spent the night in the forest. He can't have known what had happened to Robert Banks. Was his mate dead or alive? In custody or still on the run? All Henry knew was he was now alone. Him versus the world. What was going through his mind at this point? It seemed likely he would have thought he'd killed both Constable Bartles and George Wollstonecroft. He'd hit both men and he'd seen them both go down. If Henry was caught and convicted, he'd get the death sentence. Would they hang a 15-year-old? Likely, they'd commute the sentence. But then he'd spend his life in Pentridge Prison, and that might be a fate worse than death. The shooting of George Wollstonecroft upped the stakes for everyone. What had been a manhunt now took on the characteristics of a war. Superintendent McCormack had requested 20 more police be sent from Melbourne, including men with bush experience. As The Sun in Sydney reported, quote, On Sunday in Neerham, Henry Maple was no longer regarded as a misguided youth to be invited to surrender, but a young desperado to be shot on sight. The police have been issued with army rifles and 303 bullets, and no man is expected or asked to take further chances. It's not hard to see why people thought Henry Maple would have to be shot on sight. He'd twice fired at men trying to arrest him, and in both cases they were lucky to still be alive. 
George Wollstonecraft might not make it. That said, in both cases, a barrister might argue that Henry Maple had been acting in self-defence. Then, of course, there was the fact that he was just 15, years from being legally responsible for his own actions. So, shooting dead a kid who was armed with a 22, which was considered a P-rifle, would be a sad and serious outcome. Yet, this drum was beaten in the papers, with Robert Banks's comments to police relayed at face value. Henry Maple may very well have wanted to be Ned Kelly, but reporting of this was only on his mate's say-so. The Sun offered, quote, Banks says that Maple would never be taken alive. The use declared ambition is to parallel the worst exploits of Australian bushranging romance, hence his bravado in lingering about the township when a day's straight walk into the bush would carry him beyond practicable pursuit for possibly months. The paper continued, At any moment, rendered desperate by privation or in self-defence, the youth, it is feared, may put his hand to a deliberate crime or crimes that may enable him to realise his ambition to be ranked with Ned and Dan Kelly. On Sunday, the weather had cleared up, and this narrowed Henry's chances of avoiding detection. So too did the fact that army weapons were being handed out to anyone who wanted to join the hunt. The Argus reported, quote, 30 military rifles were sent from Warrigal, and visitors who came to the junction for the day in motorcars and other vehicles and on horseback were supplied with arms. Practically all joined in the search. That afternoon, a man named William Fallon found a camp near an old mill. He set off on horseback for Neerham Junction to tell the police. On the way, he spotted Henry Maple, who ducked into the scrub. Twenty minutes later, another civilian saw the boy heading in the opposite direction. Fifty police and civilians descended, and, with the aid of Aboriginal trackers, they searched for Henry until nightfall. The Herald reported, quote, They traversed eight miles of country, and on Sunday evening had discovered that Maple was travelling in a southwesterly direction in the wild, rugged Glennaiook, a place so densely timbered and so tangled with undergrowth that only a highly skilled bushman could get through with anything like speed. Glennaiook. Henry's family home was only a few hundred yards away. It was now too dark to continue the manhunt, but they'd get him after daylight. On Monday morning, newspapers covered all the weekend's happenings in breathless detail. The Argus's headline read, Bush sensation, one youth caught, captor seriously wounded, many people join in search. The Age called it a thrilling bush battle. The Benalla Standard said Henry's shootout with George Wollstonecroft was, quote, the like of which is usually reserved for pictures. In Henry's discarded military overcoat had been found several bullets cut into dum-dums. There was also his notebook with that single entry about him shooting birds earlier in the week. What was most intriguing was that in a pocket there were two carefully cut bread and jam sandwiches. Did Henry Maple, just like Ned Kelly, have sympathisers out there? Who was feeding the boy? As it had turned out, he'd broken into a surveyor's camp and stolen his food. Fears of some network of friends were completely unfounded. Every hand was raised against him. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Robert Banks was in the Warrigal lockup, looking the picture of misery, ravenously eating bread and butter a policeman's wife gave him. Never again, he was quoted as saying, no more bushranging for me, my word the bush is cold. For his part in the crimes, Robert Banks would only be charged with breaking and stealing, and was later to serve a year in a reformatory. Thanks to Robert's stories, newspapers now had new details on Henry. Robert said that out in the bush, Henry had made him hold up cigarette holders. Then Henry had shot them from his fingers at a range of 30 feet. Riffing on this, the age told readers, quote, The men of Neerham said that young Maple can hit a bird on the wing with a pea rifle. From childhood, Henry Maple has been fond of a rifle, and his secret ambition, it is said, has been to grow up to become a man and a bush ranger. The pea rifle, the bush and he have spent hours, days and weeks together. While all of Australia was thrilling to Henry Maple's exploits, there was one person who'd been kept in the dark. This was his mother, Ethel. She'd been in hospital the whole time, recovering from an operation. On Monday morning, she was finally told what was going on. She demanded to be taken home. Ethel was furious she hadn't been informed earlier. She said that if she'd known, she would have left hospital, gone out and found her son and brought him in safely. Those 20 extra police from Melbourne arrived at Neerham Junction at 10.30 in the morning. There were now about 50 police officers on the ground. Given this overwhelming force and that they knew where Henry was and that he was likely headed for his family home, the civilians should have been told to stand down. Instead, there was rancour in the ranks. The Age reported, quote, The party was not enthusiastically welcomed by local searching parties. Matters were threatening to come to a climax owing to the police failures on occasions to follow the advice and direction of residents who knew the bush. And there was some muttering among the bushmen and complaints from the police. Everyone did settle down, but the civilians weren't made to hand back the 303 rifles they'd been given, nor were they told to disband. Instead, around noon, a party of eight farmers and returned soldiers went out on what was called an independent search of Glennayook. They were armed with military 303s and with their own revolvers. One man also carried a 22 calibre rifle that fired short rounds. Around 2pm, they were joined by a party of police, led by a senior constable named Roberts. These men came up on a huge fallen log. One of the civilians, Ted McCarthy, saw movement in ferns at the other end of the log, just a dozen or so yards away. He waved the others back to take up firing positions. As for what happened next, stories varied. In one telling, Constable Roberts called, Maple, give it up. In other tellings, Ted McCarthy shouted, Come out, Harry, or you'll be dead meat. Who fired first was also unclear. Most witnesses would say it was Mr McCarthy who fired first, unloading two shots from his revolver into the ferns. Then there was at least one, but perhaps as many as three shots from Henry's twenty-two. Given how fast all of this happened, it seems doubtful he could have reloaded twice. But witnesses said one of his bullets whistled between Constable Roberts and one of the civilians. Then some of the farmers and returned soldiers opened fire. In the seconds that followed, there was what was described as a convulsive movement in the ferns. Then the shooting stopped and there was silence. Advancing on Henry's position, the police and civilians found the boy lying face down. Turning Henry over, they saw he'd been shot between the eyes. Henry had fallen almost within sight of his parents' home. But Henry's fight wasn't over. Despite having a bullet in his brain, he was still breathing and his pulse was strong. Using their rifles as a litter, the men of the posse carried Henry Maple from Glen Nayork. 
Hundreds of people streamed across the fields to gaze at the bushranger. He was put in a car and driven to Neerham Junction. Then Henry was taken into the police motor and rushed to Warrigal Hospital. Back where Henry had made his last stand, his Winchester rifle was found. A single spent cartridge for one of the long 22 calibre bullets he'd been using on his rampage was found by the log. Stanley Lockett, a farmer with the posse, checked the Winchester rifle and found that it was jammed with a bullet. Try as he might, he couldn't get it free. As Melbourne's afternoon paper, the Herald had the scoop all to itself. Its headline, printed as events were still unfolding, read, Youthful Desperado Captured, Shot Between Eyes, Maple Falls Unconscious, Arrival at Hospital, Bullet in the Brain. When the police car arrived at Warrigal Hospital, a photographer from the Herald was on hand to take a haunting picture of Henry Maple carried from the vehicle by plainclothes police as a nurse in uniform hovered. Henry's eyes appeared upturned to the sky. His mouth was slack and his body sagged in the arms of the officers. Henry Maple died soon after this photo was taken. The picture would run on the front page of the Herald the next day and be published in papers across Australia. The Tasmanian paper The World headlined its article about the tragedy, Young Ned Kelly, Boy Bushranger Meets His Death, Grim Battle of Bullets in the Scrub, Henry Maple's Last Tragic Stand, Circle of Rifles Spit Certain Disaster. The question was though, whose bullet had hit the 15-year-old boy between the eyes? Everyone had wanted to go out hunting for him, yet no one wanted to take credit for killing Henry Maple. The autopsy would recover from his brain a single, flattened, long 22 caliber bullet. This fit his Winchester rifle. But long 22s were also used in the revolvers the civilians had been carrying. Police now claimed Henry Maple had committed suicide. Further, the police said his rifle was not jammed when it was found. On Thursday the 30th of March 1922, Henry Maple was buried in Neerham Cemetery his coffin carried by some of the men who trapped and shot at him in Glen Nayuk. Happily, George Wollstonecroft was on his way to a full recovery. On Tuesday the 11th of April, in the small courthouse at Neerham South, a coronial inquest heard from Dr George Lay, who said it was his belief that Henry Maple had not committed suicide. There had been no powder burns or marks around the wound, and he didn't believe the wound had been washed. Further, the trajectory of the bullet wasn't consistent with him shooting himself. Dr. Lay believed Henry had been shot from at least three feet or more away. Dr. David Trumpy, who performed the autopsy, also said he didn't think the bullet had been fired from close range. Joseph Maple, the dead boy's father, testified he'd received a statement from a nurse who'd attended his son before he died. The Maple family lawyer, a Mr Doria, told the inquest that this nurse's statement was that she believed the wound was due to a revolver shot. But a gun expert named Frederick Clift did not agree. He said it was possible for Henry to have shot himself in a crouching position and it wouldn't necessarily leave powder marks. He said if the bullet in Henry's head was fired from a revolver, it would have been more flattened. But as the West Gippsland Gazette reported, quote, Mr. Doria objected to the evidence on the ground that people who shot at the boy with revolvers did not want to admit it and were putting up a theory of suicide. Mr. Doria also wanted to know who'd authorised guns being given to civilians. Detective Bell told the court he didn't know. 
He admitted he'd heard Ted McCarthy had been the one to shoot Henry with his revolver, but Detective Bell also said he'd later heard the boy shot himself. Constable McCartan testified that he'd been told Henry's rifle had been jammed, but then the next day he'd been told by a senior constable that it wasn't. The rifle was fine and had been in perfect working order. However, that farmer, Stanley Lockett, who'd been on the scene, gave his evidence saying the gun had been jammed so badly he couldn't get the bullet out. And if that was the case, Henry Maple could not have shot himself. Giving evidence, Constable Roberts said the first two shots fired had been from a revolver. The next two he believed had come from a 22. He said that none of the police had fired during the confrontation. Another constable said the first shot had been from the 22 and then there'd been two revolver shots after that. A farmer named Frank Spencer, who'd been on the scene, said he heard Ted McCarthy call, Come out, Harry, or you'll be a dead man. Frank Spencer also said, quote, A policeman gave me a service rifle. Our instructions were to give the boy a chance. I did not fire. He said McCarthy fired two shots with a revolver into the ferns. Then other shots had come in quick succession, which he presumed had been fired by Henry Maple. Edward McCarthy said he'd been 10 yards away when he saw the ferns moving and signalled the others to surround it. He claimed he said, Come on Harry, we've got you this time. When there was no response, he followed up with, Hop out Harry, or you will be a dead man. Then Henry had fired his 22 from the ferns. Ted McCarthy said he fired his revolver twice. He said, quote, I had a revolver and a rifle. We were told to use our own discretion about shooting. I might have shot him, but would contradict it. Ted McCarthy said after he fired, there'd been more shots from the ferns and then more gunfire from the other men. Another of these fellows, Walter Mills, had been armed with a 22 that took short bullets. He said he'd fired one shot, but it had been 10 yards wide of where the boy had been found. In any case, the bullets he was using that day weighed less than the one retrieved from Henry's brain. All up, 21 witnesses were examined. No one could say with any certainty what had actually happened. But the overall effect of the evidence was to absolve anyone from any blame. Yet it was hard to argue with the Maple family lawyer, Mr Doria, when he said, quote, If the capture of Maple had been left to the police, the boy would not have suffered death. The police did not fire a shot. The shooting of the boy by the civilians was not justified. The coroner, though, was only able to hand down an open verdict. He found that Henry Maple had been killed by a 22 caliber long bullet when he refused to surrender after being surrounded by police and civilians. That week, a truth reporter went to the district to cover the inquest. He wrote, quote, At Neerham Junction, where the majority of the men who took part in the boy hunt hail from, it is not safe to ask any questions, as they evidently realise that the part they played in the pitiful tragedy does not reflect to their credit. This truth reporter visited Joseph and Ethel Maple in their home. Henry's father and mother were heartbroken and they were angry. Joseph said, quote, I was absolutely certain that he would come home as he was never more than three miles from the house. Had he been allowed to do so, I would have detained him, but he was headed off and driven into the scrub. On Thursday, after Henry had shot at Constable Bartles, Joseph claimed he'd made an offer to the police. Quote, I said that if three or four of the men who were looking for him would come to the house, I would sit up with them all night, and when the boy came in, as I was sure he would, if the road was clear, I would hand him over. But this they would not do, but at night surrounded the house, evidently determined to shoot him on sight. 
Joseph said that on Sunday night, the night before his son was shot, the police still had his house surrounded, meaning that Henry couldn't get home. Ethel was also angry, quote, If they had only told me on the Sunday, I would have left the hospital, got a motor car and come home. I am sure I could have found the poor boy and have saved his life. He did wrong, but he was only a boy and they should not have shot him. The couple produced many condolence letters from people who'd known Henry and liked him despite his rough edges. One of these letters was from Mr Smith, the Thorpedale man Henry had worked for and who'd played his own part in this tragedy by hitting the boy back in 1921, which had resulted in Henry running away and then being re-arrested and returned to the Royal Park Depot for neglected children. In his letter, Mr Smith admitted he'd perhaps acted poorly, though he'd done so with good intentions. He went on, quote, The manner of his death cannot meet our approval. He may have been an outlaw, but he was only a child, and one would have thought that all those men could have captured him in some other way. Indeed. Right after Henry was shot, it was reported that Constable McCartan, who was in charge of firearms, had to collect 30 military rifles from the locals before leaving Nearham Junction. While it hadn't been a bullet from one of these 303s that had killed Henry Maple, handing them out to vigilantes had certainly empowered the men to go out with a shoot-on-sight, shoot-to-kill mentality. As we've heard, there were numerous ongoing newspaper reports of police putting these weapons into the hands of civilians. On the 2nd of August 1922, this issue was raised in Parliament by Alexander Rogers, a long-serving Labour politician. He asked the Liberal government's Chief Secretary, Matthew Baird, quote, If you will lay on the table at the library all the papers relating to the shooting of the 15-year-old boy Maple by civilians at Neerham, and if you will inform the House by what authority service rifles and ammunition were issued to these civilians. Mr Baird replied, quote, The papers in this case have been laid on the table of the library. They do not, however, disclose that the lad was shot by any civilian. From inquiries made, it appears that no service rifles were issued, either by the police or military authorities, to civilians. If any such weapons were in the possession of civilians, they were not obtained by them with the knowledge or authority of the responsible officers. So, at the inquest, Detective Bell had said that no police had fired a shot. Now the state's chief secretary was saying that no civilians had shot Henry Maple. Suicide had been ruled out by medical experts. So how had a 22 caliber bullet ended up in his brain? Truth was outraged at what it believed was a government cover-up. Quote, As to the statement that no service rifles were served out to civilians, that is absurd, as after the lad's death, the greatest difficulty was experienced in collecting the rifles and ammunition from the civilians. The paper said some of these weapons still hadn't been returned, and likely never would be. It continued, quote, a terrible blunder was committed in allowing armed civilians to join in the manhunt. The lad was not an outlaw and was done to death in a callous manner by someone, and who that someone is should be found out. The paper continued, The boy was killed in cold blood when he was cornered. The veil of secrecy drawn by the government over the deplorable incident must be torn aside. We want no lynch law, no vigilante committees, and no Wild West justice in Australia. Members should demand a thorough inquiry into the Neerham boy hunt by a royal commission, for there is something very fishy about the whole proceedings. I'm not sure how the Chief Secretary's claim can be seen as anything but a lie. Certainly, Truth thought so. 
it said there was a killer out there who needed to be brought to justice. Quote, the man behind the gun on this occasion was the official who gave the order to arm civilians. And it should not have been difficult for the authorities to have ascertained who the official was. But as they have not done so, Parliament should insist on the mystery being solved. But truth was a voice in the wilderness. The other Melbourne newspapers, which had been happy to label Henry Maple a boy bushranger and compare him to Ned Kelly in the lead-up to his death, weren't interested in this mystery in the slightest. So what had Victorian authorities learned from this tragedy? Incredibly enough, what they'd learned would be on display less than three months after Henry Maple's death. That was because another boy bushranger, this one 17 years old and inspired by Henry's example, went on a shooting rampage and then took to the hills. That forgotten story is the subject of the next bonus episode for Patreon supporters. It'll be available soon. In the meantime, there's nearly a dozen exclusive bonus episodes for supporters to enjoy. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you'd like to help me make this podcast, become a supporter by going to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. This link is also in your show notes. If you're a fan of the show, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. By doing this, it'll help other people find the podcast. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungara people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.